confidence is cultivated. Even for people who, you know, people look at me and they're like, oh, you're very confident. You tell great stories. Yes, I do. But I've spent my entire life doing that, practicing telling stories. From Comcast NBC Universal Lift Labs, it's Ideas Elevated, the podcast that elevates innovative entrepreneurs and their ideas. I'm Danielle Kahn, head of Lift Labs, and today we're chatting with Erica Williams Simon, a digital content creator, author, and the founder of the Creators Lab at Snapchat. In this episode, Erica chats with my colleague Luke Butler about how growing up as a preacher's daughter helped her grasp the power of storytelling. She'll question the stories you've been told about success and help you avoid becoming a mirror of someone else in order to stay focused on writing your own authentic story. We join Erica and Luke now, live at Lift Labs. We're very excited to be joined by Erica Williams-Simon, who has just stepped off the stage at Lift Labs after an incredible talk uh, as part of our Live at Lift speaker series. Erica, uh, welcome to Lift Labs, first of all. Thank, Thank you for you. being Thank here. Thank you for having me. Erica has recently released a book called Users of the Truth, which is an examination of some of the stories that we're told and a memoir of her journey to take back control of, of her own story. I want to start with the title of the book, You Deserve the Truth. It's quite a provocative title. If people today, entrepreneurs, young professionals, young folks kind of finding their way, if they're not getting the truth, what are they getting today? I hate to be blunt about it, but if they're not getting the truth, they're getting lies. First and foremost, what you know, I think you did a wonderful job of recapping what the book is about, but I start from the premise that we are all inundated with story. Everywhere we go, we're like fish in water, whether we recognize it or not stories that we have kind of created on our own, uh, but even more so stories that have been taught to us through content, through media, through social media, through cultural myths. They're just absolutely everywhere. And so I think when I say that you deserve the truth, the truth is usually what is underneath some of those stories. And to be able to evaluate kind of are the stories teaching me? How have they shaped my life? How have they shaped my decision making? And if they don't align with my values or what I believe to be true about myself and the world and the impact that I want to make, how can I change that? The book is part guide, part memoir. And so you talk about your own your own journey. Talk about some of the, the kind of early success that you had, that on the face of it, you were doing everything that you were supposed to do. But there were these feelings that were kind of building up inside of you. Talk a little bit about kind of the moment that you realized you weren't kind of living your own truth. You weren't putting yourself to your highest and best use. Yeah, I'd had, like you said, I'd had kind of what I call like a traditional millennial success story. Most of the metrics of what we would evaluate as successful for our generation, you know, I'd gone to school, gotten a degree, gotten a good job, had had a modicum of success there, was on television and gone to the White House and all these fancy things, was ostensibly also even making impact in the world because my career was in politics and social impact. And yet I would go home at night and feel very, very uncertain about the future. I would feel, and not just a feeling, I was truly financially insecure and unstable. I was questioning the true lasting impact of the work that I was doing. I felt like a hamster on a wheel. I felt limited in some ways by what my career was. I mean, at the time I was running a national youth program, a youth policy program, but also was a commentator and spokesperson. And 
so much of what I was being asked to communicate were talking points, right? Like express this big, powerful idea that's going to change someone's life in two seconds, in five seconds or less. So all of these pressures then coupled with the fact that I was communicating narratives of empowerment and justice and equality and freedom, and yet constantly subjected to, you know, sexual harassment and racism and all these things. And I basically say it was just like a a perfect storm of events and realities that didn't align with who I knew I was supposed to be in the world. So I'd come back from my honeymoon and it was time to start my job again. And I truly just couldn't do it. And that sounds funny because, you know, we're taught that quitting is such a bad, bad thing. And I like to reframe that as saying, no, sometimes quitting is just walking away from something that isn't serving you, something that isn't healthy for you. And so I did. I, I quit my job with no plan. And I I like to say, you know, this is not an eat, pray, love narrative. I didn't have like a trust fund to fall back on. I did. This wasn't, you know, an intentional soul searching journey. I quit because I couldn't I couldn't stand to be in that environment and living that life anymore. And I knew that I had to figure out something different. I won't take your book too literally. I just got back from my honeymoon two days ago, <laughs> so I, I, I won't use this format to uh, to, to leave us. Are you trying to tell us something? <laughs> I, I know. I'll just make sure my boss doesn't listen to <laughs> right. listen to this podcast uh, episode. But I, I like how you how you refer because quit has a has a, a kind of a negative implication, and and you know the, this notion of like failure, which can be misinterpreted, I think, also in in the entrepreneurial world, is like. You know, it's it's kind of celebrated, um, but quitting is also about taking back control. Yeah. A lot of people, I think, that will have experienced the feelings that you had, or just kind of have that innate sense that something's not going right. Where do they draw that that strength, that that courage to take back control and and to start shaping their own story? I think it starts with asking questions. I call myself a professional question asker. And not just because I like to host and moderate and I'm usually sitting on your side of the chair asking the questions, but because I truly do think a spirit of curiosity is how we get to freedom and how we get to liberation. And so just beginning with asking the questions, asking, you know, how am I feeling? How is this making me feel? Where does this come from? Where did I get the notion that this is what success looks like? Or where did I get the notion that this is what I'm supposed to be doing? I think sometimes we're afraid to ask those questions because we assume the answer is going to completely uproot our entire lives. And the truth is, it may not. I asked these questions in the book for absolutely every area of my life. I went from work and success to identity to my feelings about money. I wanted to know where all these stories came from. And some of them, yes, led me to make radical changes like, you know, changing careers or moving across country. Others, you know, I didn't leave my new husband. Yes, I had to (laughs) rewrite a story about love, but I stayed with him. You know, we're fine. So I don't want you to think that by asking these questions, you're automatically kind of disrupting your entire life. What you're doing is becoming more aware of what you're doing. And I think awareness is also a prerequisite for for liberation and getting to a point where you can feel a bit more fulfilled about what your day-to-day journey is. A big part of the book is about storytelling. It's about understanding the stories that we've heard and that we've seen every day that have been created that aren't don't necessarily resonate with reality. And then this notion of taking back control and and writing your own story. And with so many platforms out there now, you worked for for one at, at Snapchat. Yeah. You talk about the fact that we're all storytellers and that we're all putting content and images and a perception of what our life is like out into the the world. So we're all storytellers, but I don't know if we've been trained to be good at it. You look at Instagram and there's, it's an idealized version of your, of your life. 
talk a bit about some of the different techniques or the different stories that are out there and how you talk in the book about the different types of story. How do, how do we become better, more authentic storytellers? The idea of us shifting and in, in all being storytellers really crystallized for me when I worked at Snapchat, right? So I literally worked at a company that created a new form of storytelling, the you know long, short form vertical video. And I realized in working there that we truly are constantly creating content all day long. But I think and what I, you know, if I'm going to put a futurist hat on a little bit and what I talk about in the book is, is that if we move from being just consumers to now all being story creators and storytellers, I think the future lies in us being story interpreters, being able to better understand what are the foundational values and principles and stories that we're telling beneath the content, beneath, you know, the images that we're, we're posting and the images that we're consuming, beneath the recaps of the vacation or the highlight reels of the bio and the website. You know, I think we've been in a space now for a minute where so much of our responsibility and we believe that so much of what our success is dependent upon is our ability to tell a good story about ourselves, whether it's true or not. But I also think we've gotten to a point where we've seen how that hasn't served us as humans, where that hasn't served us as a society and it's a culture, where it hasn't served our industries. I mean, it truly has served almost no one other than maybe the companies that depend upon you telling these stories, right? And so what I challenge us to do is really begin practicing the art of narrative intelligence. That's a concept I introduce in the book, which is very simply the ability to see and understand the stories that are shaping your life. So to ask yourself questions as you're scrolling your feed or as you are creating content, what am I trying to communicate with this? How do I want someone to feel when viewing it? How does it make me feel when I'm creating it? You know, I take a very a silly example of selfies, right? It took me so long to get on Instagram because I felt pressured, particularly as a woman um, on Instagram, that like your feed just has to be selfies. That's what you have to do. Um, and selfies make me nervous. I just got to be honest about it. I've, I've gotten better at them. I've gotten good at them. But like, you know, we all make the joke, like before you get the one good selfie that you feel comfortable, you take a thousand of them, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah. How does that whole process make you feel? Right. Right? It's, it's time consuming. It's stressful for me. For some people, it comes very naturally to them. But like that is an example of something that I said, okay, I will take selfies every now and then. But it pushes me to then think about, so what is a better type of content that I can share that is more authentic to who I am and communicates what I think is important to share? and not just checks the boxes of what good social media content is. And what I found is that the audience is becoming so much smarter and so much more aware of the intentionality behind content and the truth that is underneath the images. And so they're connecting with things that don't necessarily fit in the you know top 10 social media do's and don'ts. They're connecting with things that are true and pure and honest. So at Lift Labs, we work with founders every day and help them in in a whole range of different areas of their business. I'd say that the core area where where we see need and where we work with them is around storytelling. The the, the number of companies that come to us or, or pitch that kind of all sound the same. There's lots of jargon. They, they're not really articulating an effective story around why they exist. Why should we pay attention to your company and not another one? And, you know, it's a critical role. A CEO, a founder is the storyteller in chief. They have to talk to a lot of different audiences, including their own employees, and maintain this, this sense of an, an authentic story and belief in it, even when there's uncertainty. And building a company is an incredibly difficult thing to do. There's lots of competition out there. You've, you've worked in one of the more competitive industries where there's a lot of uncertainty. What tips would you give to startup founders or just folks that are kind of making their own way in the world about how to maintain confidence in the story, how to 
kind of refine it and really even in rocky times when you have to convince people that no it's it's going to be okay even if and, and convince yourself it's going to be okay mm-hmm. how do you do that how do you maintain yeah. confidence in your own story confidence is cultivated even for people who you know people look at me and they're like oh you're very you know you're very confident you tell great stories yes i do but i've spent my entire life doing that practicing telling stories. So much of it comes from, in the book, I I start off with what my foundation was, which is growing up a preacher's kid. And it's so funny now, you know, years, years later, how I can link so much of my skill sets and my gifts to that experience. So in church, what we're exposed to on a daily basis or on a weekly basis is these core set of stories. There's one book. In my tradition, there's one book. There's the Bible. Has a, a finite set of stories in it. And yet, For generations, people have been able to stand up in a pulpit and tell those stories over and over and over again with different meaning and different lessons. Take the story of Noah's Ark. What is that a story about? Is it a story about faith? Is it a story about the destruction of mankind? Is it a story about God's promises? There's all of these ideas in one story. And the way that you get expert and confident at telling that story in the most effective way is that you have to wrestle with it and play with it and tell it in different ways and have it make a have a different moral every time you tell the story. And, you know, are the characters, am I going to delve into Noah's character this time? Am I going to delve into the animals this time? I mean, these are very basic storytelling practices. But to bring it back to entrepreneurship and founders, I found that so many people don't actually practice the art of storytelling right? They get a tagline, they get an elevator pitch, and they think that that is a story. It's not, <laughs> right? Your journey is the story. What is the story of the company? And they th- sometimes think that the first time they tell it and the way that the facts align on a page is just how they have to tell it. And I'm not talking about spin or manipulation. I'm talking about story. I, I define story as a frame for experience, experiences happen. The facts are the facts. The things that happen in the world happen. But a story is how you piece those things together to make meaning. And so the more that founders and entrepreneurs can take the facts of the case, whether that be their own journey, the realities of the company, their analysis of the market, whatever the facts are, and put them together in a frame that instills confidence and that communicates their vision and purpose, the better off they'll be. And that does not come without practice. And you're now an entrepreneur. You're a founder. You're I you're am. kind of out there on your own yes. after the earlier part of your career working in big organizations. Talk about how, for yourself, your own story has changed over the years from, you know, one voice in a big organization like Snapchat to now you're one of one, your own company, your own brand, your own story that's out there. Yeah. How has your story evolved over the last few years? I think everything was ultimately leading up to this, because if I look back, you know, part of my ability to tell my story is looking back and seeing how all the dots connect. But if I look back at every single part of my journey, I have always been entrepreneurial within an organization. I have never once left an organization doing the job that I was hired for. I've always built programs, started something internally. And while that is still very different (laughs) from the journey that I'm on now, entrepreneurship is, there's nothing like it. It is very unique. I realized that all along the way, what I was doing was developing those skills that would then ultimately help me be out on my own. I was developing relationships. I was able to kind of learn in a safer space. And I think that is also something that's really, really beautiful. This kind of young startup CEO narrative has robbed a lot of people of the time and the experience that comes with learning inside of an institution. 
it didn't make me any less powerful, any less bold, any less authentic to actually have a boss at a very at, at various points in my career. I've always been fiercely independent. It's my nature. I'm relatively anti-authoritarian. And yet I've had jobs and I've had good bosses and I've had bad bosses and I've had to kind of work in all those environments. And so, you know, my story has evolved only because I had those experiences that led me to the point of now feeling like, you know what, I'm actually ready. It's not just that I want to be out in the world on my own. It's that I'm ready to do so. Yeah. Do you see anything in the current, you know, the, the generation that is maybe a job or two into their careers now, do they have a realistic view of what the world of, of work is like? The, we, we talked at uh, your talk that you just had at Lift Lab. Somebody asked the question about this word entrepreneurship. And this belief about, you know, what it really means to build a company. Is it for everybody? You're now a voice that people are going to look to and young people are going to look for guidance and read the book and think about it. Am I really kind of living my own truth and, and writing my own story? Do you see something out there that's different in this generation that maybe needs a bit of a reality check? Yeah, it's so funny. I just I was home um, with my family in the D.C. area for Fourth of July. I live in L.A. now, but traveled home for Fourth of July. And I was sitting around talking with my aunts and my uncles and my mother. And they were saying, you know, wow, your generation and the generations underneath you, younger than you, you know, you have this fearlessness that we didn't have. There was a way that we just had to go about doing things. And we were hoping that when we got a good job in the D.C. area, it was a good government job, that it would last 40 years and we'd have retirement. Um, and you all are just building things earlier and sooner. And it's risky, but it's inspiring. And, and I said, well, look, here's how we got here. <laughs> we got here because we saw what happened. We saw an economic crisis. We saw a crash. We saw joblessness. We saw people purchasing homes and then having their homes taken from them. We, we saw what happens when you put your faith and trust in institutions. I think that was a brilliant lesson to learn. I'm so grateful that we saw it when we were young because now we realize I cannot put my faith and my trust and my entire life in a corporation, a company, a nonprofit, any other entity that I did not build or design. I think that's the positive that we took from it. The challenge is, what do you do with that information? And I think we've swung the pendulum a little too far the other direction, which then said, okay, if I can't put my faith and trust in them, I'll just go build my own thing immediately. And that's always the end goal. And I don't think that's the right thing either. I think we kind of vacillate between extremes when the truth lies somewhere in the middle. I think there is a portion of people who are, to use some religious language, who are called to entrepreneurship, right? I do think there are people who have a vision and the tenacity and the skill set and the circumstances to build something new in the world. I actually think, though, that the majority of people are not meant for that journey. I think that there is an entrepreneurial mindset that allows you to maintain your sense of self and identity with an understanding of how volatile the market is, with an understanding that you likely won't have the same job for 40 years without the pressure of feeling like you need to go create something else new, right? What does it look like to kind of work a nine to five and yet build things inside of a company? What does it look like to work a nine to five and find, you know, express your purpose outside of your job altogether? You know, I talk about that in the book with the way that we define work as a generation is that we think work has to be everything. It has to help me fulfill my purpose. I have to find my friends and my partner there. I have to give back through my job. I have to, one job is not going to do all of those things ever. And the secret is neither will entrepreneurship. Even when you're building something, it's not going to do all of those things. And so knowing that I think gives you the freedom to take the job or create the thing that is right for you. And that checks some of those boxes. I liken it to 
you know, we're, we're all trying to fit all of our clothes and all of our belongings in a carry on and then finding out actually you, you can check a bag, right? Everything doesn't have to fit all in one. And so I think when people understand that and have that freedom, you don't feel the pressure to shift to entrepreneurship so quickly or even ever. Mm-hmm. One of the things you talked about this morning that really kind of resonated, I think, with our audience was was around mentorship. And a lot of what we do is to help connect founders with people inside our company that we think can help them. Whether or not it's a good fit for us as a company, we think there's something that we can do to help guide that founder. Talk about some of the the people that have inspired you and how you think about mentorship, both in terms of what you look for from other people, but also now, you know, people are going to look to you and ask for your advice. What's What are the, some of those kind of key elements of a good mentor relationship? Yeah. You know, I said during the talk this morning that the best mentors I've had, even if I didn't give them the label at the time, these weren't necessarily all formal relationships, but the best mentors I've had have been the ones that have held a mirror up to me and helped me see myself better and then have been able to kind of tie their experiences to that rather than saying, here's what I did, you go do that. Because again, no matter who the mentor is, the context has changed. You are your own person. The environment is different. And I've been blessed and fortunate to have those people throughout my entire life. My very first boss out of college, her name was Ellen Buckman. She ran the field department at the Leadership Conference on Civil and Human Rights. And she saw me as kind of a diamond in the rough. I I didn't have an internship because I worked jobs all through college. She saw something in me at my interview and said, okay, I'm going to bring you on. I'm going to take you under my wing and just taught me so much just by doing and being and being open to me asking questions and allowing the space for my curiosity. And then when it was ready, time for me to go, because she said, wow, there, there's something bigger that you want to do. She was the most supportive person I could ever imagine in that journey. And what she did for me all along was show me myself. She would identify, there's a strength here that you might not see you have, but I've seen it. She also saw my weaknesses. There's something that you might not realize yet that you do, uh, but let me help you and tell you, you know, how you can fix that. So I found that to be the best skill to look for in a mentor is someone who can not just tell you what to do or not just kind of model things, but instead really challenge you and help you see yourself better. The book that you've just come out with, You Deserve the Truth, is one that everyone should read. It taps into things that I think you you have a sense that's there, but you maybe don't realize at the time, you don't know how to articulate. And so it kind of holds a mirror up to yourself and I think is going to be an incredibly useful guide for folks that are figuring out their own way and, and figuring out their own story. So Erica, thank you so much for being at Lift Labs this morning. We look forward to having you back next time we're in Philadelphia. Thank you so much, Luke. It's been great. This has been Ideas Elevated from Comcast, NBC Universal, Lift Labs. Be sure to subscribe to the show and leave us a rating on Apple Podcasts. For more info and to find us on social, head to ComcastNBCULift.com or check out the show notes. Ideas Elevated is a Q9 production. This episode was produced by my friend Kevin Schmidlin with associate production by Angela Gervasi, editing by Max Graham, and theme music by The Last Generation on film. From Lift Labs, I'm Danielle Kahn. Until next time.